Sundar Pichai is the CEO of one of the world's largest companies, Alphabet, the parent company of Google. And right now, he's leading the company through a complex period. He's rethinking the workplace and company culture. He's dealing with growing calls for more regulation. And he's figuring out how to confront an explosion of misinformation. On Friday, the editor-in-chief of The Wall Street Journal had the chance to sit down with Pichai to talk about the challenges ahead for the company. So today, we get to hear from Pichai himself. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Monday, October 18th. Coming up on the show, Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai on how one of the world's biggest tech companies is looking toward the future. This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people, for employees, for developers, and even your customers, removing frustration and supercharging productivity. On our intelligent platform, AI isn't just a promise. It's happening today. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Tap the banner to learn more or visit servicenow.com AI for people. Our editor-in-chief, Matt Murray, sat down with Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai last week. Their interview was recorded outside on a warm, sunny day for the Wall Street Journal Tech Live conference. Matt started the conversation with a topic companies everywhere are figuring out, the future of work. Let's start with something on everybody's mind right now, which is the workforce return. You have, I think, pushed your official starting date at Google now back to January where are you right now on um, returnees, remote work, mask mandates, test mandates, and what you expect to see in the workforce in the next uh, few months? Uh, you're right. It's been the topic this year. Uh, I've been amazed at how long, how much time we've spent thinking about it. At a high level, you know, we are operating with the view that the future of work will be flexible. It'll have inherent flexibility built into it. We deeply believe in the power of getting people together. Uh, which is why you saw us recently buy a building in New York and investing for the future. Uh, but we're roughly planning on a 3-2 model. Three days in, two days. Uh, three days yeah. in, two days off, uh, four days complete flexibility to work from anywhere. Yeah. And we are looking to accommodate about 20% of our workforce to be fully remote over time. So it's something we've been thinking about. We, we are giving people a lot more freedom to relocate to a, a different base. So trying to embrace and build in flexibility. Uh, we are embracing it as a challenge to go to new places around the country and bring in people, be it D.C., be it Chicago, be it New York, to bring in people with more perspective, a diverse workforce. So we've taken it as an opportunity. But beyond January, we're just going to tell people to make decisions locally, not centrally anymore, because different places in the world are going through different trajectories. But... And you said, you know, you, you worry about culture and, and people being together. How are you going to have the culture you want to have and need to have and that everybody can feel a part of whether they're in the office or working remotely? That's going to really be a big challenge, isn't it? It is. And we are kind of 
borrowing against the equity we had created, like, you know, yeah. of many years of working in person together, which is why we believe in the power of physical spaces. So we're reimagining it quite a bit, trying to create more collaboration spaces, fun places for people to come and get together. We do think we have to earn, like, it has to make sense for people yeah. as to, you know, what they get out of by coming all the way to work, particularly if, you're going, if they're going to be on video at work too. But I think people also feel it, you know, particularly new employees, younger employees, they are clearly, when we opened our New York offices back, we are up to 50% occupancy back. And, and it's voluntary there. There's yeah, no, it is yeah. voluntary, and, but it's about 50% back. And, and we, last week, uh, we had lines in our cafes for the first time. And so the energy in the office was back there. And for what it's worth, it's anecdotal. People seemed really happy to be mm -hmm. back. And so I do think there is an inherent human desire to come and connect as well. How much are you going in right now? This week, I've been in uh, every day, but it's been about two to three days a week. Yeah. yeah. And how crowded is it when you go in? I would say about 20 to 30 percent uh, voluntary back. I said New York is 50 percent, so it's a whole range. Is this going to be a permanent change, 3-2? Is it going to be a temporary change? Is it transitional? Is it here for... You're planning as if it's here forever, but realistically, in five or ten years, is this a new model for how a Google should operate? I think so. Uh, you know, even in places like New York and San Francisco, our employees dealt with long commutes, and that was a real issue. And mm -hmm. I, you know, so I do think people get a better balance in a three-two model. And you know, our data shows that we can make that three-two model work. Mm -hmm. But the three is important. The three days in person is going to be important for collaboration and community. I feel so. It's about getting the balance. But we are, you know, embracing that. And it's not just in New York. We probably will, you know, invest in real estate around. Because, you know, we want unique workspaces where it's easy for teams to do get-togethers. Mm. Or if you want to ideate something and collaborate, it should be much more seamless to do so. So we are reimagining it that way. You were talking a minute ago about different offices, people working at home, diversity of your workforce, I think, uh, in all ways, experientially, geographically. Is Silicon Valley different in terms of being the center of tech? Is, is tech everywhere now? You know, it's a growing pie, so in some ways it's uh, difficult to say. I still, there are strong indications which tell me Silicon Valley is still doing mm. amazing things and uh, has access to the best talent possible. But there is more activity and energy in these other places than ever before. So uh, I think it's a growing pie and it's not just going to be Silicon Valley alone anymore. Mm. Uh, you are definitely going to see other places doing well, which is good, I think, overall. Uh, but the Valley still has something special. I haven't seen that part change yet. I have to ask about your workforce a bit. It feels like employees speaking up and how to respond and how to deal, it's a new part of the toolkit for a CEO today that you have to learn to, to manage. So are you more vocal uh, yourself internally, at least, at pushing back if you disagree or saying I disagree with you or you could have your opinion? And, uh, have you changed how you interact with your own folks on issues where they challenge you? No. I view it as a strength because running a large company, uh, you want to make sure the company is doing the right things. Uh, so it brings a sense of accountability, mm -hmm. uh, which I've always viewed as a strength of the company. We've invested in channels and ways by which people can raise their concerns, and, and we've, we've done better as a company there. But And I think it's a process we've gone through is to be clear on the other side too explain ourselves and sometimes you know we make a decision uh, and you know a set of our employees may not agree with it mm -hmm. but be clear and firm and you know and show that's that's what we are going to do and i think it's important 
There has to be a dialogue of respect on both sides, I think. Mm. But I think, I think CEOs need to embrace the fact that in the modern workplace, employees want to have a say in where they work. And, and I think, I think there, there is strength in that too. So I think that's the way I've looked at it. After the break, how Google is approaching challenges from the outside, misinformation and regulation. Last month, Alphabet said it would ban vaccine-related misinformation on YouTube, which it owns. This applies not just to COVID vaccines, but many other vaccines, too, like measles or hepatitis B. Alphabet also has said it won't put advertisements on YouTube videos that deny climate change. These kinds of actions have raised questions about whether sites like YouTube can be considered neutral platforms. Aren't you basically acting as a publisher when you have to make decisions like that? Realistically, making those kinds of decisions about content and how to monitor it or what's acceptable or not, that seems like something that is not going away for a big company like uh, like uh, Alphabet, like Google. Look, I mean, I would say one way you can think about it is at the end of the day, we are trying to balance content creators, users, and advertisers. So even in that area, that policy change yeah, there's a lot of brand advertisers on YouTube. You can look at it from a free market mm-hmm. basis and say you, they don't want their ads uh, next to content because they think it's brand negative. And, you know, uh, we have to respect where advertisers want to spend their money. And if they pull out, you know, creators suffer too. And, and you know, we as a company are incented to get it right, even from a business viewpoint for us too. And are there areas of uh, controversial topics or controversial speech, though, where b- beyond what the advertisers think, your your view is it has to be protected, it has to be carved out? I mean, that must come up sometimes, too, for you. All the time. You know, COVID has been an uh, area, right? The answer is a lot of times raising authoritative information, including n- news sources. So that's been an important part of what we do in YouTube. We're also trying to find you know, expert organizations which people would accept. Uh, that's always harder than you, you realize. In some countries, public health authorities are, are, are viewed as an authoritative source. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a bit more controversial here in the U.S. But so those are all the areas we, we are trying to find the right balance. So in COVID, authoritative sources for us would be news organizations, expert medical organizations. Think a Mayo Clinic or a mm-hmm. Cleveland Clinic and, and, you know, institutions like that. Let me ask you about the privacy debate, of course. It, it, it never really goes away. Uh, and you're facing a lawsuit now, of course, uh, involving uh, incognito mode uh, from some users claiming that there's unlawful tracking. And using people's data has been central to the success uh, Google has had. How at odds are changing notions of privacy with Google's business model? and? Does the business model need to change itself here because of that? Most of the data today we keep is for the benefit of the user and to give it back. Mm. We support our products through advertising. Increasingly, we are offering alternate models as well. So, for example, Google Apps don't have advertising and they're subscription-based. You can use YouTube that way. But even in advertising, we need very limited information to make sure the ad is relevant to you and that enough people find the ad effective. So I think 
I think we will have good frameworks to evolve things in a, you know, putting people's privacy first. But people do demand experiences. You know, people tell us we have done a good job if we remind them that they are maybe going to be in New York and it's going to rain and maybe they need to pack an umbrella, right? And mm -hmm. so, or they want the fastest direction home at the end of a long day. And, and so, you know, so it's the trust. We listen to that and we are building experiences for users. That's what guides us. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest changes we announced is by default, auto-deleting your activity data. But I want the biggest privacy risk most users face is security. You know, if you look mm -hmm. at all the breaches, so the work we do to keep users safe in products like Gmail, etc. So that's where we put a lot of effort in as well. What's changed that made security, it, it is a big issue. Uh, lots of CEOs and executives talk about it and face it. The attacks I take it, the kind of cyber hacking attacks, other things are worse than ever right now. And it, what, what's causing that? Look, uh, I mean, the world of cyber doesn't have norms and conventions we have established in the real world, right? You know, you don't have the Geneva Convention equivalent on the cyber world. So over time, I think, you know, we need to internalize that and, you know, governments in a multilateral basis, the G20s, etc., need to put it up higher on the agenda. You're calling for, uh, you're calling for regulation on that front. <laughs> I'm calling for global frameworks. You're going to need it for uh, areas like cybersecurity, just like we have it in the real world, you know, and if not, you're just going to see more of it because, you know, you know, uh, countries would resort to those things. And so I do think you're going to need more frameworks like this for time. Sundar Pichai, thank you very much for the time today and the conversation. Really enjoyed the chance to sit down with you. Thanks, Matt. Pleasure to be here. That's all for today, Monday, October 18th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. To hear the full conversation with Sundar Pichai and other interviews with people like Paul Davison, CEO of Clubhouse, or Evan Spiegel, CEO of Snap, you can join the WSJ Tech Live conference at techlive.wsj.com. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.